All right, recording this bullshit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the you know the chapter yes, that's good. called this bullshit, not the movie itself. Um, uh, keep no, spending. No, no. <laughs> we're not there yet. Keep spending more fucking money on this goddamn Mac Mini that was the cheapest, most cost efficient Mac. <laughs> ah, you bitch! You thought so, <laughs> you thought it strange, was the cheapest. <laughs> I can only assume software issue because they uh, they had some Bluetooth problems with this particular model, the Mac Mini, um, where it was dropping bad. So if you're doing editing, um, it's kind of annoying because the Bluetooth mouse keyboard it's just all of a sudden like, wait, Ugh. where is it? So I had one that I used on the original Mac Mini, Dave, to play the hipster card. I had the one from late 2004, the very first Ooh. one, which was really shitty because it Goodness. was right before they switched to Intel, which came out like six months six months later. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, you know, yeah, it, yeah. it's just I'm either like way late or I guess too early because I have this M1 Mac Mini. <laughs> yeah. I love that I can learn from your mistakes. This is the best. So, You're like, you should do this. Okay. I'm in front of this giant television <laughs> And in this instance, I don't like it because it's way too much Wikipedia and IMDb in my face. I'm trying to think what research I did for this. I started some of those special features, which I never touched when we did this mm. on a podcast directed by. I made about ten minutes. I'm like, okay, that's a that's enough of that. <laughs> like, get off get off Ford's dick just a little bit. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Um, we have another guest uh, on our show this week. Uh, we have Zeta Short of the 300 Passions podcast and a writer at In Session Film. So welcome to our show. Thanks for appearing with us. Oh, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. It's wonderful. Oh, sure. No problem. And also, really, it's uh, it's a gift for us because we don't have to like think about themes or anything. You give us something to jump off of for the next couple episodes. So um, why don't you tell people what you picked and maybe, maybe why, like what was, what was behind the decision for this movie? So I went with one of the most acclaimed influential films that I had never seen. And that's the searches. And I had just heard so much about this movie before seeing it about the influence of the cinematography in particular, but then also the way that this was one of John Ford's most self-reflexive films, because obviously he had a big influence on popularizing the Western myth through his work and a theme in a lot of his early work is usually white people coming into America and trying to colonize the land and building a home there And that's always presented as something that's very heroic and there's something almost mystical about this uninhabited West. And this movie acknowledges that, oh, no, the the Native Americans are also there and they are not. I had always heard that they were presented with more complexity in this one and that he was trying to say something about the fact that you couldn't just be a racist bigot in this society. And so I thought that was interesting. And I have a complicated relationship with his work because I'm somebody who doesn't love the Westerns. I can admire a lot of them. Stagecoach, I did a whole film class on it. So I ended up giving it five stars just because at the end of it, I understood, oh, wow, we really wouldn't have this entire genre of Westerns without it. So it's Mm -hmm. so important that you can't undervalue it. But I'm somebody who likes the Grapes of Wrath and How Green Was My Belly and these more personal works in my eyes. But I know Mm -hmm. a lot of people tend to downplay their significance in favor of the Westerns because those seem more like tourist works in a way where you can Mm. really see his touch and I know that it's popular to bash something like The Grapes of Wrath because it is this very important prestige picture adapted from a famous novel and that could seem a bit stodgy but I think if you really watch the movie it has so Mm. much more to offer than something like the story of Louis Pasteur it's (laughs) really really well made and so I did want to in watching this tick it off the list to some degree but Mm -hmm. then also 
build up my knowledge of Ford's Westerns. Right. Yeah. So good to know uh, on my side of things. It's good. Got to check it off the list. I like that attitude. That's very good. But I will say you won't get any shit talking of the Grapes of Wrath on this podcast because uh, we actually on our previous podcast went through a bunch of John John Ford and we watched Grapes of Wrath. And we loved we both loved it. So none of that. Mike didn't like the big speechifying near the end. But other than that, uh, we were both big fans. So so none of that. So I think this will be interesting because you're I think you're coming to it as blind as you can be expected to be as being a film fan. Like, I think everybody knows something about this movie. It's like, it's like trying to go in blind to Citizen Kane. Like, it's just, it's part of the conversation where Mike and I just relatively recently, like within the last year to year and a half, watched this. So Mike, when you came to it again, um, and I know that I don't think when we watched it for our last podcast, it was the first time you had seen it either. So this is a repeated watch. So does this get better in your eyes as you rewatch it? Is there more depth and complexity to it? Or does it start to feel like kind of like old hat? Hmm. Well, I mean, I always had John Wayne. I always held that against it because I'm not <laughs> I'm not a John Wayne fan and didn't grow up with John Wayne. Um, my dad didn't pass that down. He was he was an Eastwood guy. If there was a, if it was a Western, it was going to be a spaghetti Western. Um, hmm. And I wondered how I was going to feel about watching it now because of the events that have transpired in america like how necessarily uh gung-ho or uh tribal i was gonna feel because there is that element of it here um about a man who's not necessarily that close with his family willing to kill maim chase and basically go over top of anyone uh to reconnect with his family but it it does seem like an excuse for violence, which we, you know, we saw with our um, red hats that we have here in America. And so <laughs> when you and I talked the social network recently, I also kind of had similar misgivings about revisiting mm-hmm. at that particular point in time. But I think is what our guest kind of hinted at. I don't know. Is is there a time where this wouldn't be somewhat topical in America? Like it seems like it's deeply ingrained to to conquer and take, even if you didn't necessarily value what was taken from you, it was yours and you want it back. And that seems to be the whole Mm -hmm. spill from the Wayne character. So even though it becomes a two hander for a certain time period on rewatch, I don't know if I should have been laughing, but just the mistreatment that (laughs) Wayne has for his allies, where he's either denigrating them in some way, he's physically shoving them, moving them around. Uh, If they get a compliment, like the rare compliment, it's usually only couched in, um, you know, it must be nice to be uh, second best to someone like me. Like it has that (laughs) sort of ego (laughs) behind it. I can definitely see Mm -hmm. why this one appeals to filmmakers in that regard, because I think, Directors in particular are probably drawn to that sense of ego and Ford is kind of putting that on display, not just with the John Wayne character, but just the just the opening shot. And the, I mean, how it's booked into the closing shot as far as just like you're going to see how I view the West. This is my my version of it. And I think every director has that sort of inkling of like, I'm going to do that for maybe not the West, but for something else that's going to be stamped as far as mm-hmm. this is my vision on display so I don't know if that answers your question, Dave. I found it more darkly comic, given what we've done found coming out of 2020. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, when you and I yeah. watched this a couple years ago, I think I treat it probably just more as pure entertainment as a Western. And this time mm-hmm. uh, I felt a little bit more uncomfortable about <laughs> what it says mm-hmm. about Americans in particular. Yeah, I could I could definitely see that. As I was watching this again, I was kind of struck – by how early the anti-hero is showing up in American cinema. Like, I'm I'm no expert, so I'm sure the anti-hero existed before this. But I think we think of that as, like, this modern invention, um, the anti-hero. And here, I mean, you have the, your protagonist you're following. I was on, he's on the wrong side of history in the Civil War. Like, this is – and he, you know, treats – Proudly. Treats his Proudly family. on the wrong side yeah, of yeah. history. Yeah, refuses to surrender any of his stuff. Like, it's very adamant about that. You know, treats his family like garbage. Uncle Ethan. I'm mighty fishy about this trail, Uncle Ethan. Don't call me uncle. I ain't your uncle. Yes, sir. 
No need to call me sir, either. Nor grandpa, nor Methuselah. I can whoop you to a frazzle. What do you want me to call you? Name's Ethan. Now, what's so mighty fishy about this trail? You know, the person who's with him the most, he consistently calls a quote-unquote half-breed. Like, it's... It's a lot. So it's, it's asking a lot of the audience, I think. And, but for me, I feel like watching this now out of order with other John Ford stuff, it, it feels like a better movie, uh, than the last time. Cause I think we had watched Stagecoach like right around the same time. And to me, that's just such a superior movie to this. So like watching this apart from that kind of helped it, uh, a little bit. But Zeta, what was your, what was your take on this going through this, uh, the first time? Well, in preparation for it, I tried to look up the context that surrounded it, and I had been aware that the 50s were an odd decade for him, a lot of experimentation going on, and he did make movies like Magambo that just don't feel very Fordian in terms of the story that he's telling or the actors that he's working with. I don't with. think that one was covered on our previous podcast. <laughs> yeah, we, that didn't make the cut. <laughs> But I know the year before this, he had been working on Mr. Roberts, which had about five different directors or something crazy, just a hellish shoot. And he was eventually dismissed from directing that film because he punched Henry Fonda on set, which is not a good thing to do. (laughs) Sounds like John Ford. (laughs) (laughs) And it caused this feud between them in a way or not a feud just an estrangement and he was very upset by the fact that he had alienated somebody who had been his friend for a long time and so this for him was a return to form in a way a return to doing what he was good at in his eyes and he's working with John Wayne who is the leading man with which he is most closely identified even though he did work frequently with a lot of other actors but Oh, some quote that I read said that oh, Wayne was like his lackey and was easily pushed around. And then other actors <laughs> like James Stewart and Henry Fonda gave a bit more pushback when it mm. came to being directed or just reading about John Ford's behavior. It sounds like he did really verge on abusive with the men and then was fully abusive with a lot of the actresses that he worked with, which is a shame. But It is interesting that you do watch it and you do feel like I am watching somebody who feels like they are in full command of the genre that they're working in. And there is just this feeling that he's finally being let loose. And you do get all of those sweeping shots of the American vistas. And I think there is just a real appreciation for just the scenery that America can provide. And of course, I appreciate that. But Beyond that, there was a whole lot that I wasn't expecting. I'd only really heard about Ethan, the main character, and his quest to get back his niece. And I had always assumed that Natalie Wood was going to play a much bigger role. But really, she's not even there. She is definitely the the MacGuffin to set him off on his quest. But (laughs) she doesn't have much dialogue. It's mostly just worried looks that she's directing (laughs) at him. And... Jeffrey Hunter and Vera Miles, I was not aware of their characters or the whole subplot where they're maybe going to get married, but then she gets engaged to somebody else. So that sort of came out of nowhere for me. And Mm. at first I wasn't really sure how to digest it, but then I did think, okay, this is very of a piece with a lot of his other work because he does have this interest in, the ebb and flow of life and often in his movies the sister of the main character or the main character's mother will be involved in some tragic romance. I thought of How Green Was My Belly where Maureen O'Hara and Walter Pidgeon can't be together. So it did it didn't feel like a dramatic shift in terms of his interests or preoccupations. But I would say the Family drama wasn't necessarily as interesting to me when we were, t- were when we returned to the homestead than the stuff where Jeffrey Hunter and John Wayne are going out and trying to find Natalie Wood and considering what it means to be a man in their eyes and to protect their family. And you do have a bit of them questioning their own motivations towards the end. 
Right. So you like the the one on one man on man abuse, <laughs> not the you know let's <laughs> let's knock people over at home and treat everyone like garbage. That's, I like when they uh, they throw a, a piece of wood down, and I guess to start a fight in those time periods, one of them has to spit over top of it. That is what I found fascinating <laughs> and wanted more of. Uh, but I was you know even though this is a relatively recent you know rewatch. Uh, in conversation for us, Dave, uh, I, I had forgotten how much time they allow to elapse, and that it feels like Ethan and Martin get close, but then have to withdraw, or they they get injured or something, and then have to pull back. And there's this return, as he was saying, to the homestead. Frequently, there's we go back, and you know the family. It feels like back home are more than willing for them to stop on this quest. Like there's no one there pushing. We've said goodbye. It's and fine. And you even have a conversation with, I think it's the Lori character played by Vera miles that, uh, says like, you know, sh- she'll never be accepted back basically into society. Like they've already sort of written off this family mm-hmm. member as dead or no longer part of the family, even if she's alive. And, uh, there's this strange dynamic that maybe is played a little too forcefully, Although I guess it would be particularly frightening if you buy into it that the Wayne character is actually going to kill the very person he's trying to save. And they really are kind of withholding on that until the very end for some reason. And I can imagine if you were watching it, if you were a modern audience at the time, the fact that John Wayne was playing someone that was going to kill a child. I don't know if they would think of it necessarily as a child, a 15-year-old, but still in our eyes, a child... Certainly an innocent, right. like even um, if not a child. And yeah. I think it's even harder probably to swallow now. At least my conception of John Wayne is like, it's hard for me to buy that he's actually going to kill this girl because she was kidnapped. And <laughs> really, you're killing her because you failed to reacquire her within the, the time frame you gave yourself to make her seen as one of them as opposed to another now at this point, which... You know, they have a, se- a sequence which doesn't really age well where they come across some other women that have been kidnapped and, like, you know, they're they're going around asking questions, handing around this doll, and some of that... They're is, not white women you know, anymore, Mike. That's, like, oh yeah, God. I, yeah, I didn't really want to drop the line in the podcast, but there you it go is. ahead, Dave, you, you play that card, you quote uh, <laughs> this film. Uh, it's hard to believe they're white. They ain't white anymore. <sighs> The, the sort of negative aspects, not of the film as far as how I view it, but the negative aspects of the characters, that's probably what modernizes it in such a way that it does stick out, in particular for a John Wayne performance, that he was allowed to play someone mm-hmm. that, you know, is, is pretty much like a, he's a nasty guy. Like he's, he's not likable other than you have a preconceived notion that John Wayne must be likable if he's in a Western. And that's obviously not the case. Yeah. This is, it's interesting because John Wayne now having watched more of his movies, mostly because of all the John Ford movies we watched, he just keeps showing up. Usually he plays kind of snarky, but usually like, you're like, yeah, but he's, you know, he comes through in the end. Like a Han Solo. He's a heart of gold. Right. Yeah. And in this, it's like, just, just down and dirty and mean. I wouldn't want to hang out with this dude. I don't want to be around him. never. Because he's going to shove I, me eventually, or insult my hat, or insult right. my family, or something. Like <laughs> it's like, geez, dude, that's enough. Of this, which I, you know, I wonder, Zeta. But he might put you in his will. I mean, okay. there's always a chance. I was about to ask, <laughs> Zeta, what do you think of the Martin character, in particular, the performance by Jeffrey Hunter? Because you get a lot of this young buck trying to push back against the old man. And, you know, I'm watching it. I'm like, yeah, but it's still John Wayne. And I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's not the one you want to yeah, push. Is that what just, you're saying? I don't know if this is, I don't know if I was reading it the way Ford and company at the time were intending it to be. Cause it comes across as a little too comical. Like when he pulls out a blade and then immediately throws it in the fire and then like throws his body to the side, like he's throwing a temper tantrum. Uh, I'm like, I don't know. I, I would be afraid that if I looked at, John Wayne the wrong way he would call me a dork or something or shove me in a locker much less if I started weeping in front of him and like throwing my toys around <laughs> so I just wondered <laughs> what you thought in particular of his uh of uh Jeffrey Hunter's performance in particular compared to Wayne well I do imagine at this time it certainly would have been daunting for a young actor to have to go up against this movie star who had been 
at the top since 1939, we could say, because Stagecoach did launch him into the A-list. And I would say Hunter, it's definitely a very 50s style of acting. And I would say that Wood also employed this style of acting at the time. And you have to assume they probably went through the star training that all of the young stars went through. And so they were taught a certain way to emote on screen. And it does come across as very dated. Their performances are very physical, you could say, but I think it is hokey when it should be a bit more expressionistic even. I don't think this movie is aiming for subtlety in terms of the performances. John Wayne is very openly nasty and I wouldn't say that you go, oh wow, this is really layered and textured what we're getting from him. There are a lot of points where he will just snarl to communicate the fact that he's quite unfriendly yeah. and he's a dog cold. barking at times that's and that's the extent of it and in terms of the perception of oh young man trying to fight back against this overbearing older man again i don't know if we are looking at it in the way that ford wanted us to because i know when eastwood did come around in the 60s there was a lot of question of oh is he going to usurp the John Waynes of the world and isn't it fascinating that his characters don't wait for the other person to pull out their gun which is one of those hilarious tropes of Hollywood westerns where oh they're going around murdering people but they have honor (laughs) and you think is that what happened but And I think that you're meant to, as much as the John Wayne character is quite unlikable and he is this anti-hero, I think we are meant to look at Jeffrey Hunter's character as a weakling who's too emotional and sensitive at points like that. And John Wayne is far more capable in this rugged landscape and he can defend himself, defend Jeffrey Hunter, and he needs to build this boy up into a man so when he returns to the homestead he can be ready to be a good husband to Vera Miles and take care of the family possibly after John Wayne is gone I love I actually love how easily discarded the Ethan character is at the end everyone else groups together they they embrace they walk in the door and it ends with him just standing there somewhat awkwardly not knowing where his place is or what he's supposed to do until he just turns around and walks off. I think that's about as much justice as you'll get uh, for the Ethan character, not being fully embraced back into, you know, proper society, I guess, if you want to call it that, like that he does have a specific skill set for wartime. uh, But unless he gets killed in combat, I don't know how this man how's he go about his day? Like what is, what is his place in the world? Because if I was Martin, um, Vera Miles would not have to twist my arm that much for me to, no. to stick around. I, Lori is my favorite character in the movie. Cause she's the, she's the most sensible. You know, Lori, I, I've, I was just thinking that maybe it's about time you and me start going steady, huh? Well, Martin, Polly, you and me been going steady since we're three years old. We have. About the time you found out about it. Well, gosh, Laura, I've always been fond of you, but well, with all this trouble with, with Debbie and Ethan, I just... Ethan wrote on an hour ago. Now, Martin, I don't know what you can do about finding Debbie that he can't. He'll find her now, Martin, honest, he will. She's supportive while also being hypercritical. And I say hypercritical in the sense <laughs> Repeatedly. <that> she's, right. <laughs> she's saying, like, all of the things, like, you know, this is probably the path that's going to go down, and I don't think you should be doing this, but I can tell that your mind is made up. And there is that sense of honor that, especially, I think, for a young man that feels this kinship, that is constantly called into question by the Wayne character. Like, well, you're not, they're not actually blood. And why do you really care? Like that seems to matter to him. And I understand why he would want to do it, but man, I don't know if I'd wait to the wedding day to come back and then, and then leave again. Like, I feel like after you spit over that log, (laughs) you're pot committed to, to that's a really good point. But I'm also glad you brought up this, this whole scene of him kind of not having a place. Um, Cause I, I think to me, that is the, the strongest part of the movie um, and the most interesting message it has, because earlier in the movie, him and this older couple are kind of talking about like, you know, 
this isn't really our place anymore. We'll probably be buried here and things are changing. Like we are at, a, like the world is at a crossroads and there's going to come a time where men like you aren't needed. Like when things actually get civilized and we actually get everything done here, there's nothing left for you. So, and of course that shot, that silhouetted shot of him in the doorway, kind of between those two worlds is known for a reason. I think it's like just the absolutely most perfect way to kind of end the arc of this character, but it kind of, it does leave you kind of at loose ends. Like, Oh God, what what does this mean? It's not, it's not a simple thing. Um, But what I was wondering is if, both of you think this movie has earned its place on these lists because like I'm looking, I'm looking it up right now. It says it's on the AFI's hundred years, hundred movies, number 96. Um, and then when they did it uh, 10 years later, it moved all the way up to number 12. It is the number one Western film on the AFI's uh, <laughs> top 10 Westerns. And I guess there's a website called they shoot pictures. Don't they, where they calculate critical reception for any given film. And the searchers is the ninth most acclaimed movie ever made. Um, so this is really, really high praise. So first, Zita, you coming at this kind of as a first time viewer, are are you confused by this type of ranking? <laughs> or are you like, yeah, that that sounds about right. So where, where do you stand on this? Dave, on he subject? wants you to call people out. That's what he's yes, he's trying yes. to bait you into it. <laughs> I think the thing with any of these lists or any of the awards is that it does put so much pressure on a movie to live up to certain expectations. And sorry, right off the top, I am just going to say, I don't quite get it in terms of it being ranked (laughs) that highly. I do understand that you go to anybody, you go to Martin Scorsese and he says, yes, this is the greatest Western of all time. And you think, wow, that's very high praise from a masterful filmmaker. So clearly he is seeing something in it that's very important and influential to him and then just director after director that you go oh wow that person's amazing says oh yes I was influenced by the searchers when I made my most acclaimed film Hmm. but in watching the movie itself I wasn't seeing the things that they were seeing I suppose beyond the obvious virtues that it has, as you pointed out, the very famous shot of him silhouetted in the doorway. And Ford is very good at using the visual language to show and not to tell. And I think there were just points where I felt like, oh, this is fine. I wasn't really captivated. There was never a point where I thought, wow, Hmm. this is a masterpiece beyond what I had been told because I did go in thinking, well, clearly the influence. And so I think that's the thing that I kept thinking of every time I wondered, Oh, why do people love this so much? And I do think it is a good movie. It's, it's not as though I'm totally dismissing it or saying that people shouldn't watch it. But if I were to rank the John Ford movies I'd seen so far, this isn't really up there for me. Hmm. Did you feel like it took turns that you were like, oh, I didn't like this. I wish they had gone a different way. Do you wish it had been more focused on, you know, the Natalie Wood character? She had more to do. Or was it just like, oh, I just didn't kind of like the journey that, that I was going on? Well, one of the big issues for me was the scene where he's chasing her around and you think that he's going to kill her or he wants to kill her. And then he picks her up and suddenly we get this really warm, gooey, sentimental music and we realize, oh no, she's returning to the family and it's all happy now and she's going to be reaccepted. And then, as you pointed out, though, there is that sense of ambiguity towards the end where even though Ethan has done this thing that he set out to do, you do wonder whether he is going to find his way back into this family or outside of this family where can he go because we have had that idea previously given to us in the movie where he just doesn't quite know his place after being in the war and having this very set purpose and having nothing else Mm -hmm. to do in his life But at the same time, it just did feel like such a dramatic tonal shift. And it was the sort of thing that you got with the Hayes Code, where suddenly they would have adapted this book that has a really downbeat ending. 
and you think, oh, this is clearly leading up to them committing suicide or something. And then at the last minute, they drop the prescription pills that could have killed them and decide to return to their ex-girlfriend or something that just feels totally out of place with what you've just seen. And for me, Mm. this was one of those moments where I went, this is disorienting. This feels so strange in terms of the direction that it just took. And it didn't quite work for me. And I know it's meant to be a moment where Mm. you are shocked because they have set up this expectation that he's going to kill this little girl. But it didn't have the effect that Ford clearly wanted it to have. Hmm. Yeah. See, Mike, I just want to call out that uh, our guest is asking for more movies with suicide attempts. That's that's no, what we're no, getting. We, we, we <laughs> We've already had a lot of that already, and Mike is had enough. He'd yeah. much rather, apparently, have women just be picked up, slung over their shoulder, well, and everything is solved. That's... It's not a. You know... <laughs> It's not binary here, Dave. It's not like this either no, or. No, one or the other. That's it. There are, there Those are your choices involved. Um, you know, maybe one one film on this podcast without the threat of any sort of death. We could go that way. That would be mm. fine. No? Okay. Boring. All right. Um, you know, when you were mentioning the sort of the, the acclaim here, I, I found it interesting that uh, what is going on with AFI that they do, which they've only, they've only done two of these lists. I guess the... Uh, whatever network had aired on CBS or ABC, the second go around, they're like, eh, no more of that. <laughs> People don't care about these rankings <laughs> uh, because that would have been interesting. You go to something like the sight and sound list and going back to 72, it was 18th um, mm-hmm. and 92. It's ranked five, uh, then 11 and then seven in 2012. So there's a little bit more consistency, at least on that list. I do find the AFI this jumping ninety spots, ninety six to twelve. <laughs> like what? <laughs> what? You know, not actually too... figured out all these other movies are bullshit. We just yeah. want to watch the Searchers, it's... <laughs> and it's not like I imagine the Searchers is you know in the time period of I believe that first list was like ninety eight. I think is when that aired. Mm-hmm. I don't imagine in that decade that came after that it's like the Searchers just became this pop culture sensation that there's you would think reappraisal. with changing times you would think it would be the opposite. Frankly, yeah. with the, the amount of misogyny and kind of outright racism yeah. that or our hero is slight here. shifts. Like, you know, like you said, yeah. there's five spots here or there. Right, um, but it is strange that if it's you know considering if it's considered the number one western that you know that would warrant 96 out of 100 considering especially in american film for afi's list how prominent that genre is um i i think i can step back and it was interesting i had the disc on and was watching some of the features and uh, zeta's right scorsese is like all over this movie like so it's like uh i actually wanted him to be quiet for a little bit because curtis Easy. curtis hansen was on there who i think is very like underrated and i was like oh cool curtis hansen's on here talking and then they're like they let him say like i like this movie and then scorsese comes in for 20 back minutes. to I'm marty like, okay um he did make a point that if you didn't see it in its original like vista vision presentation that you're missing a lot of what his generation got out of it, which... Okay, Christopher Nolan, easy. I, I did have that thought. I'm like, you know, I just watched Tenet, you know, at home. Netflix sent me the disc. I'm watching on a 40-inch television. I'm like, yeah, this is fine. <laughs> like, it's fine. <whatever. laughs> it's good enough for me. Um, but maybe there's something to that, because definitely at that time, they're competing with television. They're trying all sorts of new formats. And right. I could see, you know, it'd be like the first time for modern audiences, if you got to see like a, a narrative film in IMAX the very first time, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, people here, uh, well, even worldwide, I think went nuts over avatar, which just yes. three months later was considered a hokey gimmick, like another three, three D movie. Oh, they're doing clash of the Titans. Like in that, yeah. like, uh, but man, if you, if you were there for that opening weekend, people Those, were yeah. into it. Like, so, and not just the, the freaks who are like, I want to live in whatever well, planet and I want to get all mostly that. The freaks, <laughs> like, but. but even like normal people went out to see this 3D movie and were wowed. So, you know, some movies do benefit highly from the technology. And maybe during this time, this was one of those. But I just recently rewatched like a few months ago, Unforgiven. And just for me, like Unforgiven hits me harder. Oh, yeah. With having a viewpoint of looking back at this genre and all of these characters and these, these tropes of the form and how that in particular Westerns glorified violence or the idea of masculinity being associated with violence. I think those things, and it's, it's unfair because that, like I said, they have the benefit there. Eastwood 
of a career in Westerns with hindsight, looking back at his work. Right. Ford's not doing that here, although Cedar brings up, he was also working in the Western game for a long damn time. So he could have, have. <laughs> if he was any good, he would have been looking back by now. <laughs> all right, Dave, you've got Ford at number 96 all time. Uh, 102 now. We're just dropping them down off the, list. off the list, buddy. I mean, I find it interesting because, you know, I mentioned stagecoach earlier, which I think is a better Western, frankly. And the lead character there, his kind of whole goal, even though he is a fighter and kind of hyper masculine, his whole goal is to like meet a pretty girl and settle down with her. Right. So I think that is actually a much more interesting arc in a lot of ways where it's like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired. You know, this is a terrible way to live where I don't think you get that with Ethan. Like he is not a character who really even learns that much by the end of this. He is just it feels like to me he's more accepted his fate at the end. Like, well, this is who I am and nothing's going to change. So I'm just going to be who I am and leave the site. Uh, from here on out and I'm not a part of that world anymore which is a kind of horribly depressing end for that character but because he's such kind of a just a mean old grouch for the whole movie I don't know that you really feel bad for it. like I don't feel a lot of like sympathy for Ethan as he kind of walks off no of and course leaves. not I'm, yeah. I'm walking off with Vera Miles and I'm yeah. like peace out i hope i never hang out with you again like you you are you're a good time not uncle ethan yeah (laughs) we are not kin in fact there will be no christmas card see you you know have fun and and zita i find this interesting because i think you're uh in some ways in the same boat with mike where like you're anti-western but that's not like your genre of choice that's well she started out saying like she's not big into the westerns just like you you aren't so I was wondering, do you feel like that has an impact when you when you watch something like this? Or are there other other films within that genre that, that you appreciate more than something like The Searchers? Like you appreciate this for its craft, but maybe not so much for kind of the storytelling and the arc. Are there other things within the genre that you do enjoy? It is one of those genres where I generally struggle to get into it, even though I can obviously admire the fact that a lot of them do have that great craft and they have had a huge influence on the development of cinema. And I thought it was interesting that Mike made the point that The Searchers is an iconically American film and the Western is this American genre. And so because Mm. of that, I do understand why AFI was putting so many entries in that genre on the list. But then at the same time, I got annoyed by the fact that you look through the 100 movies list and they weren't really sticking to that rule because you have these very British movies like Dr. Zhivago and Lawrence of Arabia. Nope, those are ours now. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Was that that rule made because they had like one American producer or actor? Like, I don't understand how they even have these sort of lines in the sand, but... Some American financing went into them, but even (laughs) some here's nine cents for your movie. It's ours. We own it. (laughs) But I just look at it and I think, all right. So if the list is trying to be these very American movies that are important and that represent the development of American culture over the, over time and attitudes towards social issues, That could be great, but they didn't really stick to that. And then in terms of the Western genre, I find it really interesting in theory. I always find that I have a good time analysing them and digging into the various issues with them. And then later on, it does feel like now you can't just make a traditional Western. There has to be some reflection on the ills of the genre and the, the problems from the past in terms of the way that race relations were depicted. And that can be done really well, as you pointed out. Unforgiven is a very good example of that, but there's a lot of discussion of printing the legend instead of printing the true story and how that caused people to see society in a certain way. But I also think that there are a lot of Westerns that come across as ghastly because they do feel such a need to be self-reflexive. And you think, oh, but you're not quite as intelligent as Clint Eastwood or whoever was writing Unforgiven. And this just comes across as a, a recent film school graduate going, 
oh, look at all of the Westerns that I've seen. I'm going to visually <laughs> reference all of them in a way that's not very intelligent. And you're going to roll your eyes at how obvious it all there is. There was one, I saw this years ago. So um, if either one of you have seen it recently, um, just edit this out, Dave, where I was wrong. But uh, Kevin Costner was in it. I don't know if he directed it uh, with Robert Duvall. Open Range came out like 2003. From what I remember... Cause I caught that one late, like on television. I remember enjoying that one quite a bit. Cause I felt like it was a Western about these two particular men's problem that they run into in this town. And so it was very throwbacky from what I remember. Like it wasn't <laughs> about the American West. It wasn't about the country. It was like someone steals their property get it back. <laughs> and they, they get pissed off. <laughs> that, sort of, that sort of thing. It was just an adventure story, uh, but it was well done and I enjoyed it. And there was one other one with Tommy Lee Jones and Hillary Swank. Uh, that was the Holmes around 2014. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I liked it. Now, that one's a little bit more about, in particular, how women were treated in that time period. Um, but I did really like that one because Tommy Lee Jones is totally the sidekick. He's the gunslinger that is, at oftentimes, he's very pathetic. And the way he's introduced in the film is in a state of being pathetic and needing Hillary Swank's help. And... That one was enjoyable, but that one's probably got a little bit more on its mind as mm-hmm. far as politics and society. But as far as I know, Kevin Cost and Robert Duvall, you know, they just get into a tussle over sheep or something. I don't know. And that was that was a fun time. And even a movie like Slow West, you know, it was like mm-hmm. kind of a throwback in that way where it's just kind of a simple story. We're just going to, you know, carry this out until it's ending. It wasn't necessarily a, like a, a treatise on, you know irish immigrants in the old west or anything like that it was just like no we got michael fassbender so he has a stupid irish accent we're just gonna go with it that's all you need isn't it, it so that's all you want yeah pretty much okay. yeah pretty much that's <laughs> that's all i need from most movies absolutely yeah i think um the interesting thing about talking about these really well thought of movies to me is that even even if it's a movie that i don't particularly like i i tend to be grateful for them because of the impact that they have had. And I'm just like going over um, the Wikipedia entry on the influence of this movie. And it's like, I mean, this is like a murderer's row of influences, like moving forward. I mean, you mentioned Scorsese, of course, but David Lean watched it when he was making Lawrence of Arabia, Sam Peckinpah, um, let's see, Paul Schrader, Wim Wenders, um, when he was doing Paris, Texas. I mean, it's just like, this is, I mean, especially if you're talking about movies that, you know, um, Zeta, you mentioned kind of the landscapes and just kind of the beautiful cinematography and photography of this. I mean, this is, I mean, this is the, this is the one that people look at where you're like, if you want to know how to shoot a landscape, go back and watch the searchers. And it's impressive that all these years later, people are still looking at this for an example of how to get this done. Like maybe not in terms of plot, Maybe not in terms of acting, but in terms of the look of a movie that's expansive, like this is this is kind of the gold standard. So I'm kind of grateful for it because it's created some motivation for some of our other great filmmakers to make these big sweeping films, which are the kinds of films like I use I lean towards the kind of films I usually like, uh, which drives Mike crazy, which is I'm convinced is the reason he's never seen Lawrence of Arabia is because I please don't. It's because I keep cause... talking about it. Uh, so no, he just refuses. I, I have to take <laughs> two weeks off work to finish it. And, you it's know, only three hours and 47 minutes, Mike. What do you, I, you got time? I don't believe you. <laughs> I don't believe you. So, yeah. So, I mean, I'm grateful for it. I don't think it's John Ford's best movie. I don't think it's even his best Western. It's not my favorite John Wayne performance. But there are, I think, the highs in this movie are higher than most movies. Like that, you know, that shot that we talked about at the end of the film and the vistas in this are absolutely just stunning to look at. Um, but it's just like there's there's a little too much kind of up and down in this movie as far as quality, as far as where it goes and the way it's performed. And I don't know how much of that you can throw at the feet of the actors, how much you can throw at the director and how much of it's just the time. You know, Zita, you brought up the 1950s were a different time for acting than certainly the 2020s are. So it's a little bit hard to come at it uh, from that perspective and, and kind of pick it apart because it's like, no, this is this is the way it was done back then. And in terms of Wayne, I would say this is one of his better self-reflexive Westerns, though, because as time goes on, you look at most of his movies in the 60s and the 70s, and they're just all about, look at how great he is. We need alpha males like him back on screen and something like True Grit. 
Mm. I know it's considered a classic, but I just found it obnoxious that he's allowed to be this horrible, mean-spirited old man and he's treating all of the people around him terribly and you're meant to have affection for him and you're meant to go, wow, we should go Mm -hmm. back to letting people behave like this. And I thought, no, or (laughs) even... Should Rooster we? <laughs> Cogburn, which he made with Catherine Hepburn, which is just a depressing movie to watch because it's meant to be a mixture of True Grit, which I already don't like, and The African Queen, which is a very good movie. <laughs> and it's just mm. a really watered down version of both of those. And you have two big movie stars, and I happen to think she's a better actress or actor than he is in terms of her skill set. But I don't think you're going to get... Yeah, you're not getting too much take. argument yeah, there. That's... <laughs> that is 100% objectively correct. You're good but on you that. You just have the two of them, and you get the sense that they just really weren't mm. into it on set, and they're both really just phoning it in, doing the things that we expect from them. And at least with this, it does feel like Wayne is trying, and I would say Ford mm-hmm. seems to understand his limitations at this later point in his career because I know with their early collaborations he put him in the long voyage home where he has to play a Swedish Navy man I think that's what they're doing in that movie and then he gets press ganged into staying on the ship and he was almost able to get away and he's meant to be this tragic hero and he's meant to have a Swedish accent and John Wayne is just failing on all fronts in that movie and it feels like Ford inserted him into a role that should have been played by a Henry Fonda or a James Stewart, somebody Mm. a bit more capable in terms of acting, but you can't deny the fact that Wayne did have star quality to certain audiences and they would just show up to any movie if he was wearing a cowboy hat and there was going to be a big chase on horses and i was about to call them stupid people but then i'm like i don't i don't know i also I like mean, a lot of arnold movies from the 80s and it's just small yeah. this way i mean we talked about this when we talked about uh when we talked about john ford's movies and in some ways especially the westerns these were the action movies of the time so these are the Schwarzenegger Stallone movies, you know, you yeah, got, I have a good time with commando and right. total recall. Yeah, John so Wayne showing up with it. a shotgun out of nowhere and stagecoach. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. it's yeah, absolutely. For mm-hmm. sure. And in terms of entries in the genre that I do like, I think the Oxbow incident is really good. And that's another one that is sort of a message movie. It's anti-lynching and it's also sort of a commentary, even though it came out a few years before this started to become a big issue on things like McCarthyism, where people are just gripped by the fear that, oh, these people have done something. And so instead of listening to the facts, taking on what they say as something that could be true, they go, no, we just need to eliminate them as a threat immediately. So let's kill them without considering whether or not they have committed this crime that they probably didn't commit. Also sounds like a movie that John Wayne would hate. <laughs> uh, so that's that's uh, that's good, too. Uh, but I also want to talk to you about your podcast. Like you mentioned, you know, kind of this unlikely pairing with, you know, with Hepburn and Wayne. So um, you do a show about romances. I'm not sure that I mean, Mike might put this on the greatest romances of all time because uh, he's, you know, he's got his favorite characters here. Um, but what kind of, you know, what are we talking about? The Searchers? Yeah, The Searchers. Yeah, your your favorite romance. I just, I like, I like the wedding that's broken up. I like that, but I don't. You know, and you like her? About <laughs> I do. I do like Lori a lot. Yeah. So, Zita, I would guess that this would not be high on your list of great romances. But why don't you tell us about your podcast that kind of takes a look at some of those great romances in cinema? Yes. So the concept of the podcast is that it's another AFI list so I already review the top 100 films that did make the list for in session film and then I decided to do the 300 nominees for the list that didn't make it and I always find these other nominees very interesting because AFI they tell you that it's industry luminaries who vote on these lists and so you are imagining the martin scorsese's and the meryl streets of the world ticking off a few films on this list but then they don't tell you who put together the 400 films that these people got to choose from so it's Mm. just some random 
AFI employees. We've had all sorts of conspiracy theories about, <laughs> oh, was it interns? Was it just the publicity people for certain actors who were coming in and going, no, you need more Elizabeth Taylor films. But it's all very odd. And you end up with these very strange lists where you have a huge variety of nominees. Superman 2 made the list of 400 nominated films. And I thought, well, that's, that's really interesting. Specifically two. That's interesting. <laughs> yes. Not Superman 1, which is more iconic. Right. Say. Hmm. But that's why I found it really fascinating. And I do just think there's a huge amount of variety on the list of nominees. So I mm. wanted to do that in a way, even more than one of the top 100 lists, even though those are still interesting. That's sort of what we try to go through. And I have different guests on each episode. And you appeared on an episode, or Dave appeared on an episode. Uh, it's got to be the worst parade. episode then. Not listening to that one. <laughs> Pick another episode. Listeners. Any episode. <laughs> Anything but charade. Uh, you can listen. If you want to listen to the episode, you can listen to me try and fail uh, to convince uh, Zeta that that's a great romance. So you can you can no, enjoy no. that. <laughs> listen to the Notting, Notting Hill episodes. Great. Listen to that instead. <laughs> Uh, actually, any of them, Dave. If you're making a list of these episodes, you are 96. Mm, if, I'm okay with 96. That. Hey, yeah, on on the top 100, I'm fine with that. That's good. 102. Ah, damn going. it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm sure you know you have a Twitter account for that. Where they where can they follow the show and you on Twitter? So I'm on Twitter at zeta underscore short, and then the podcast is at 300 passions, and then it's also available on Apple Podcasts, Anchor. Spotify, Castbox, all sorts of different platforms that distribute podcasts. Yeah, and my episode aside, I highly recommend listening to that show. I've had a great time listening to the first few episodes already, uh, so definitely check that out. And if for some reason uh, you want some more of Mike's nonsense because he runs the Twitter feed for us, uh, you can follow us at Offscreen Death and on Instagram at the Offscreen Death. Don't throw me under the bus. With the it's you. Thing. You know, I'm it's not... you. I don't have the password. Set... <laughs> it's you. Now you're setting up an expectation that I'm actually going to yeah. use it. It could go seven right. months well. before. But... <laughs> if I find a funny GIF, I'll throw it on there and then post a link. Yeah, Good that's enough. That's all. That's all I ask. <laughs>